We find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning as we continue our series called Standing in a Storm. All of us as Christians know that at one time or another, you and I are going to be faced with great difficulties, great challenges, troubles that seem overwhelming to us, tribulation that we never thought we would experience. It's during those times that we have one of the greatest opportunities to be a witness for Jesus Christ. It is one thing to be a witness for him and to rejoice in him when everything is going well. When we feel blessed and are prosperous in our lives. It is another thing to show and to witness and to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ in and through our lives when everything is going awry when difficulties arise, when troubles overwhelm us and seem to pound us down. It is at these moments that we have such a dynamic opportunity to show a fallen world that is encompassed in darkness the light unto Christ. It is Peter's desire and hope that his recipients of his letter would learn to stand in the grace of God and amidst great trials, troubles, and tribulations. For a wave of persecution was just about to uh, intercede with them. It was just about to overwhelm them. And Peter writes this letter to prepare them. And as we have been reading, Peter has been preparing his readers to stand in the grace of God. And last week we ended with these words found in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And I read these as we ramp up to our text this morning. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Caesar Nero has now given forth an edict that Christians were to be persecuted. He believed or he created the crisis, I should say, that led to this persecution. A large portion of Rome had burned to the ground. Scholars now believe, historians believe, that it was Nero himself who set fire to these locations due to the fact that he wanted to enlarge his palace. He wanted to uh, give more to his personal glory in the structure that he uh, erected towards himself. And Rome had laws that forbid him to just simply take land that belonged to Roman citizens. So a great fire started, just happened in that area, and the only two houses spared was his and his best friends. But when the public started turning against Nero... He needed a scapegoat. And he saw that this group of individuals called Christians, many of them Jews first that had already been problematic, now these Jews have become Christians. And the one thing that these Jewish Christians held to was the idea of a monotheistic idea of God. That there was only one God. And he was the only one that deserved their worship. So instituting any kind of pluralistic society in which Nero desired, including claiming that he himself was a deity, calling himself the son of God. It can be found on coins that he minted 
demonstrating that he felt he himself was a deity and demanded to be worshipped. And in many of the cities in which Peter is writing this letter to, there have been temples created for the worship of the emperor. Now, Christians were forbidden to do so. They were prohibited by their understanding of the monotheistic identity of God, that God is one and there is no other God before him. And so they could not capitulate. They couldn't uh, allow themselves this uh, type of worship. It was prohibited. It would go against everything in which they were. So Nero saw that as an act of rebellion called them a a sect of insurrectionists. And with this fire now, he blamed that on them. He sent an edict across the entire known uh, Roman Empire stating to all the governors that Christians should be arrested and persecuted because of their unwillingness to bow their knee to, uh, to Caesar. Peter writes this letter knowing that this is about to happen for he himself is in Rome. And in our text this morning, he says to them, now I want you to stand in righteousness as this wave of persecution is about to hit. I want you to be aware of your conduct during this time. This moment of persecution is not an obstacle to your Uh, way of life or to a certain uh, status of uh, comfort. It is an opportunity to show that the gospel of Jesus Christ is real and allow you to act radically in the face of such persecution. The Christian life is a radical life. It's radical because it uh, it is the complete opposite of everything else that the world would say is normal. And therefore, looking at Christianity through the lens of the Word of God, you will see it in a much different light if you choose to live the way God has asked us to live in a righteous state. It's going to be a radical state, to say the least. Now, when we speak of righteousness, there are two uh, points to this I must make before we can fully understand what we are discussing. First and foremost, there's a righteousness between us and God. That righteousness is established not in and of ourselves, but in and of Christ. When we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, not only does he forgive us of all of our sins, but he clothes us with his personal righteousness. It's called the imputing of righteousness to us, allowing us the perfect standing before God the Father. If he just forgave us of our sins, then it would be a zero balance before the Lord. All of our bad would be done. But that's only one type of sin. To not do what God has asked us to do is another type of sin that equally needs to be dealt with. And that is those sins that would lead to righteous behavior with one another. And when we fail in those endeavors, who then is to cover us? Well, not only is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ sufficient to wash away the guilt of all of our sin, but it also clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And positionally, I stand before God the Father, perfect in Christ, not of myself, but in him and him alone. But there's a second balance to righteousness, and that is our interaction with one another and with this world. It is this righteousness that Peter speaks of here in our text. 
He wants us to have a right relationship with those who are around us. As one wrote, he said, remember that righteousness means what is in harmony with the will of God. God wants us to interact with the world around us, with the authority that is within the world, with the people around us in a certain manner. That is a choice that we make to either obey or to disobey those directions. It is this righteousness that we speak of. And Peter is saying, I want you to live righteously with those around you and with the authority that is over you so that when they mock you, it's a, it's a, it's a done deal, it's going to happen. When they persecute you, it's a done deal, it's going to happen. They can be ashamed of themselves. Peter wanted their persecutors to see the innocence within the Christian community and be ashamed of the persecution that they are leveling against Christians. That's what Peter is moving for it, towards. That's what he is driving for. If he can show and demonstrate that the Christian community is not in full rebellion against the emperor, against the governors, etc., he can show that they are not insurrectionists, and therefore, when they are persecuted, it can be clearly determined that they are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, and that alone that prohibits them from worshiping the emperor as a deity. And that is what Peter writes to today. And he writes to two different demographics. To those who are living in these uh, regions of Rome, this area of Asia Minor in a status of a free man, and those who are finding themselves in the social class of a servant. Two different demographics that he is writing to and telling them how God would have them interact with the authority that is above them using the example of Jesus Christ himself as the authority for this instruction. And in this text, we are going to be challenged to possibly reconsider the manner in which we interact, think of, or speak of the government authority that is over us here in this country. Now, as I stated in the beginning, if we are going to live righteously amongst this world, it's going to be a radical life. And I use that word very specifically. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. And this radical uh, status is taught by our Lord and, uh, and Savior himself here in verse 43 of chapter 5, the Sermon of the Mount, here in Matthew's Gospel. Listen to these words very clearly and carefully. And consider yourself as they are being spoken. In verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These were radical words. 
as the Jew was faced with the oppression of Rome, seeing their countrymen slaughtered one right after another, hoping for deliverance through the Messiah, and now through the man that they think could be their Messiah, they are hearing these words. We are to love our enemies. We are to love our enemies. Not just loving those who love us, not just interacting warmly with those who are brothers alongside of us, but with our enemies also, those who persecute you specifically. Peter undoubtedly hearing these words is, has this echoing in his heart and in mind and his conscience as he is writing to us this morning. If we are going to live righteously amongst the, the world and under the authority of the world and amongst each other, it is going to have to be a radical lifestyle. It contradicts everything that comes natural to us. I'm reminded of this every time I get behind the wheel of my car. My car must just have a label on it. Drive ridiculously around me, please. I can't tell you some of the things that I have seen lately. And you, you just say, where am I? What planet am I on? How did you ever get your license? It's amazing what you can get on the internet today. It just blows me away. And I'm reminded each and every day as I wished that my car had an option of missiles and I could just deal with this once and for all. Alleviating society of such individuals must be a betterment to the progression of its evolution. (laughs) It's ridiculous. And if I am troubled by simply that, to the point where I might get frustrated and angry. And then I read these words. Love them. Really? Can't I just love them when they get pulled over for driving so silly? (laughs) Can't I just love them at that moment and say, Lord, thank you for your justice. Let us read these words together this morning because, again, they are probing and they are radical as these Christians were about to face some of the worst persecution that the church has ever faced to that date. And of course, in the wave of this particular wave of persecution, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem took place. That's how adamant the Roman Empire uh, fiercely turned on the Christians, thinking that they were insurrectionists and going to rebel against the emperor and his authority. But Peter writes to us, as he now has led to us and given us this in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He now spells that out for us. He wants us to live in this honorable conduct so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they are about to do, that's the emphasis in the text, this is about to happen. If it isn't already happening, they're going to speak evil of you that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of their vis- on, on his visitation. They want, he wants them to be a light into the darkness in such a unique and radical way. So he fleshes it out for them a little bit here in our text this morning in verse 13. He says, Now be subject for the Lord's sake to every, listen to this, every human institution whether it be the emperor as supreme 
or to the governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. In Peter's writing, you find this interesting manner in which he wrote. He speaks first and foremost of our relationship with governing authorities that are over us, and then he moves into, the, into our home life, the relationship between husband and wife, etc. And at first, it might seem just like a logical progression from the authorities overall to that of the home. But in that culture, many of the households paralleled their ethical thinking at home with that of the government. So what they did is they tried to structure their thinking and their, and their idea of right and wrong where they could by what the government had first and foremost laid down. And then they took those principles that they could adopt and adopt them to their families. It was, it was the manner in which the code of ethics were written. And Peter's writing along those lines. He is stating these things very clearly and carefully. In the same progression, a household would in these uh, regions, in these areas of Asia Minor, the same way the ethical understanding of the home would be constructed is the same way he wants the ethical understanding of the home to be constructed by what he first presents concerning our ethics, our relationship with the governing authorities above us. Today, we don't have a similar parallel, but I could say this, that there are laws that we bring into our home that we agree with, of course, that you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't cheat, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, murder is wrong, etc. That would be a similar comparison to what they are doing, but it's still far reaching from the way it was back then. So to the readers, they would have completely understood Peter's gist here. And that's what I'm getting to this morning. He's starting with the relationship with the emperor. If he would have started simply with the family, they would have questioned, well, how do we interact with the governing authorities above us? So Peter lists it for them very clearly and distinctly. And I don't think he minces words here when he asks us, or I should say commands us, to be subject to every human institution. The word subject means to place ourselves under the authority of that institution, voluntarily and willingly. To place ourselves, to allow ourselves to be governed by these human institutions. And he makes it very clear here to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors sent by him, as you remember, the letters went forth to the governors of these regions to persecute these Christians. And now Peter is radically telling them to subject themselves to their persecutors. And in doing so, notice what he says here. You are doing the will of God. Now, this is extraordinary. 
This is how radical Christianity becomes. Let's not just brush over these things. Let's consider them with the authority and the weight of the inspiration of the word of God that it is given in. And let us consider what is being said here. He is asking, I should say, commanding us to do this for the Lord's sake. He's now emphasizing this, that it doesn't matter if it is the emperor or the governors or any other human institution that is placed above you in authority, I'm asking you to be subject to them. For this is the will of God, verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Now let's remember for a second. The ultimate example that Peter will lead us to is Christ himself. And I am amazed that when Christ stood before Pontius Pilate, how Pilate was so conflicted concerning the the execution of Christ. He tried everything to avoid making that decision. He couldn't do it. There was something within him that was stirring. His wife even told him, don't get involved with this guy, Jesus. This, this This is something much bigger than both of us. Something was going on here. Jesus subjected himself to every human human institution. He allowed himself to be judged by them, criticized by them, tortured by them, killed by them in every way, shape, and form. That was the will of God for him. That's the will of God for you and I that we subject ourselves to human authority, recognizing the authority of those who are above us and living under that authority. Peter brilliantly, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was diffusing something as he was writing. Knowing if this letter was captured, and many of them were captured by Roman uh, guards as the letters were coming into different regions, it was not uncommon for the Romans to scoop them up. In fact, many of the manuscripts and copies of the original text that we have were found in Rome because they were seized by Roman soldiers. Now, if a Roman soldier read this or a governing authority, this was written in Greek, it was perfectly accessible to them. There's no way from the text of this letter that they could derive that these Christians were trying to rebel and overthrow the emperor. There's no way that they could be called insurrectionists. There's no way that they could be called, you know, those who simply are there to cause trouble and difficulty and so forth. It would have confounded the thinking of the people. And then if they saw them in this gentle state, guiltless, and simply being persecuted because they are Christians, there was going to be a conviction in the heart of their persecutors that would silence them. As Pilate was silenced before Christ, so would these persecutors be silenced before them. And as those hail that Christians They have a different king and they're loyal to him alone. They are a rebellious sect. They want to overthrow the government. They're subservience. And they want to undermine the rule of the Roman Empire. They could have never gotten that from this. Paul writes extensively on this while he's in Rome. Turn with me to Romans 13, if you will, verses 1 through 7. I want you to read this for yourself. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject 
to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. You will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger uh, who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are minister of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Does it sound like what Peter's saying here? It's identical. Now, please let us understand that he is not talking about a political candidate that's voted in and out of office every four years. He's talking about Caesar Nero who persecuted the Christians to such a degree that he hung Christians in the courtyard of his palace, dipped them in oil, lit them on fire, and rode his chariot around the inner court of his palace under the light of illumination of burning Christians. This is what Paul's saying to Christians. Now, subject yourself. These are men, individuals, appointed by God. They are servants unto you. Now, this whole understanding of the authority in which God has given these people, and again, we are not claiming that every person that God puts into place is what we would consider our ideal candidate. But there's something more going on here than just the ideal candidate. Government is one of three institutions that God has put into place to curtail the wickedness of the human heart. One of three. Today in our culture, we are seeing that all three of the institutions that God has created to resist and to curtail the advance of the wickedness of the heart are being eroded and done away with in our culture today. The governing authorities is one of the institutions to restrain the wickedness of the human heart, the pride, the greed, the arrogance, the lust, the covetousness of the human heart. Laws that keep us in a order and a control and therefore not moving out into the realms of chaos. And as the government's authority begins to dissipate and individuals after election will chant and rave, he is not our president, They are not resisting just the president, but from a biblical worldview, they are resisting God who put him there. When a candidate that was elected into office that wasn't ideal to you and I who hold to a biblical worldview, we still submitted according to the word of God to their authority and to the office in which they held. And even though I may radically 
uh, differ with the opinions of a, a candidate and their policies and so forth, I would still address them as Mr. President for respect of the office in which he holds, understanding that God has placed them there. God has placed rulers and leaders into the positions in which they have, sometimes giving us what we want and sometimes giving us what we deserve. If you notice back in the book of Kings, you'll discover that God often gave a king according to the heart of the people of Israel to demonstrate to them their wickedness and how far from God they actually were. But government is an authority that is established over people for the restraining of the human heart. Number two, the second institution that God created to restrain the heart was the family. God created a family in a certain design, in a certain way that children would grow up respecting authority, learning an ethical balance, understanding how to interact with the authorities above them and also people around them. The parent correcting the child and disciplining the child, chastening the child, was a manner of restraining the wickedness of the human heart. And today, as we desire as parents to be more of our children's friends than rather parents, we are giving up a crucial element of what God has designed. My job to my daughter is to be her father, not her best friend. She has too many friends that will tell her what she wants to hear. She needs a parent who's going to tell them her what she needs to hear. Secondly, the family. And as the family erodes, we see the chaos that is created, right? But thirdly, God instilled in each human being the conscience to restrain the wickedness of the human heart because the heart is wicked and desperately wicked it is. Who can know it? The conscience was meant to be that internal control and restraining that individual from crossing certain lines. But as that conscience becomes seared or that conscience becomes redefined from God's standard to a worldly standard, everything goes. And instead of allowing for the order, God created a system to allow for order in a fallen world. But the more we move away from that, even under the precedence of freedom, we are not moving from order to order, we're moving from order to chaos. People think that under this hierarchy of authority that we are stifled in our freedoms. But unbridled freedom leads to nothing more than anarchy and chaos. And governing authority is the first of the three. And Paul says that as Christians, Peter says that as Christians, we need to subject ourselves for the Lord's sakes to every human institution. But also, if I may bring to your attention 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Quickly, I'll read them to you. He says, first of all, then, as Timothy is writing to the young pastor, Timothy, I urge you that supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, 
godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Not only are we instructed to subject ourselves, but to pray for these people. And I will tell you, folks, and I am as guilty as everyone else on this subject. If we would have prayed as much as we would have, as much as we complained these last eight years, maybe something would have happened even more dynamically. We need to be praying for our leaders. Even if we adamantly and radically differ with them, we need to be praying for them in sincerity that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as instructed by this, but also that we may live in peace. That's what Paul's saying here. So as we re-examine our relationship with the authority that is above us, let us consider what Peter is writing here. And in so doing, we are fulfilling the will of God. We are silencing those ignorant, foolish people that say that we are resisting the progression of society. And live as this first demographic, as free people, not using our freedom to cover up for evil, because freedom can be used for self-pleasure as much as it can be used for God's glory. But he says here, use it unto God, living servants of God. He then commands us in four commands, honor everyone. That word honor means respect everyone. Love the brotherhood, the agape love that Christ has shown us. Fear God with a reverent fear and honor, respect the emperor. Think of what he is asking in the context in which he is asking it. When it comes to respecting people, let us understand that there are people who are diametrically opposed to everything that we stand for. They have adopted lifestyles that we would consider sin against God, but we are still to respect them. You know why? Because as C.S. Lewis wrote, he said that they are still potential image bearers of God. They are individuals who still can come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let us be careful that we do not speak in a derogatory manner to people who are different than us. Let us respect them as Christ respected people. He didn't uh, embrace their sin, but he respected them to eat with them, to listen to them. He even uh, fulfilled their requests when the centurion came and said, can you heal my servant? I'm not worthy of this, but will you do it? Yes, I'll do it. Let us be careful on how we represent Christ to different people because I believe that they are asking questions. They are looking for answers. They have seen the depths and the despairs and the hopelessness of this world and they are looking for a light and if we just beat them down like everybody else, then what are we doing? Again, I'm not embracing their sin, but I'm embracing the possibility of their salvation. And these two are, these are given to those who are free. Verse 18. Now servants, he says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, 
when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let's stop there. One of the accusations and the constant criticisms of Christianity is many will adamantly uh, suppose that the Bible condones slavery. That is adamantly false. The Bible is not condoning slavery. The Bible is acknowledging the slavery of the culture. Slavery was a social class at that time, much different than the oppressive, racist slavery that we are accustomed to today. It was a status of free people, the aristocrats, and servants that served those people. This is a dynamic that you had into Europe for decades, centuries, millennials. It was a reality at that time. At that time in the Roman Empire, about 40%, they estimate, were in this social class. And the Bible speaks to that class of person, stating that in the church that there is no longer free or slave, Greek or Jew, but we are all one in Christ in the body. But there is a practical understanding of that social class. That these individuals in that class needed to be instructed on what to do next. And though the Bible instructs in this way, it is not condoning it but it is simply acknowledging the reality of it. And these people needed that instruction. They needed to know how to interact with those who they are under authority to. The free person, the authority to that they answered to immediately was the governing authorities. But one who is in a status of servant, his immediate authority was the person, the master of his household. And so that is what Peter is writing to here in our letter. He's saying, now you subject yourself, submit yourself onto your masters, those who are just or unjust. It didn't matter. It wasn't a conditional command. It was an unconditional command that Peter set forth for them. Now, again, this is something very strange in our thinking. It's something that we would not uh, truly understand unless living in that culture. But individuals who found themselves in that social class arrived there because as the Roman Empire conquered the known world, those who were prisoners, instead of being killed, were brought in to be part of the servant class. Children who were born in that servant class remained in that servant class. Individuals could enter that servant class if they owned uh, owed a debt to another individual and could not physically repay it with money. They could say, I will serve you willingly for X amount of years. So this class existed. 40% of the known Roman Empire was, was within this social class. And Peter now writes to them and how they should interact with the authority that is above them. Now, when we talk about authority, let us understand what we are speaking of. Any authority that is placed over us, police, the state government, the federal government, etc. And for these individuals, it was their masters. And again, I understand that this is a um, detestable 
thought in our culture today, but let's continue to read and let us understand what is being said here. He is again asking them to position themselves in a position of innocence before their persecutors. As he states here very clearly in verse 20, but if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his, in his steps. He commanded, committed, I should say, excuse me, no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is our example. Christ is always our example. We are to love as Christ loved. We are to forgive as Christ forgive. We are to subject ourselves as Christ subjected himself to his authority. I love that particular time where Christ is before Pilate and he's talking about the authority to have him crucified or to have him released. And what does Jesus say? No authority, you wouldn't have any of this authority unless it would have been given to you by my Father who is in heaven. His perspective was that there's something greater going on here. It wasn't their temporal comfort that they were, he was striving for. It was to glorify the Father and to save those who would be saved. You and I as Christians need to reevaluate what we are doing here on this life. If we are simply living for the temporal comforts of this world, we are going to absolutely dismiss everything that we've read here because it is not to our advantage to do so. But if we say that we want to example Christ to a fallen world, then let us live as we have been instructed to live by the apostles, but also by the example of Jesus Christ himself. This is so important for our conversation this morning. For in verse 24, let's continue. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we may die to sin, to live, there it is, to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. And that is the act of salvation in the life of the believer. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Peter is saying, this is why we do this, because of what Christ has done for us. We are now saved, new creations in Christ with an eternity plotted for us that can never be taken away from us. An eternity that is the true life. It's not merely the afterlife. It is the life that we wait for. We are not alone in doing this for we have a shepherd who has gone before us. He has given us an example and he is with us as we take each step through this journey here on this in this earth. And he can comfort our hearts when we find ourselves in difficulties. He knows what it feels like to be rejected, to be persecuted, to be mistreated, to be treated unfairly, unjustly, etc. He understands it all and he is with us through it all as we walk with him. Now, many of you at this point, I have to answer this question because many are you saying, I know this is going to come up because this is the question I always get when this subject comes up. Is there ever a time 
where God instructs us to disobey the civil authority that God has placed over us? And the answer is yes. I call it the Acts 5.29 rule. The Acts 5.29 rule. And that rule states, as Peter the Apostle answered, we must obey God rather than men. When we are instructed to do something that contradicts the exact instruction of the word of God, then we must decline respectfully. For example, in Exodus chapter 1, when the midwives were given the order by Pharaoh to destroy the Israeli children, the midwives disobeyed and hid them instead. And God commended them for it. The contemporaries of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when asked to bow to the statue, refused to do so and was cast into the fiery furnace where God spared their lives and showed them through it and met them there within the furnace itself. John and Peter, when they were instructed to no longer preach or do anything in the name of Jesus Christ, they asked the question, the 529 rule, we must obey God rather than men. However, I say this, when we resist, it does not mean that we are exempt from the consequences of doing so. It is a choice that we make to honor God in the light of whatever persecution or consequence may arrive afterwards. We may be thrown into prison. We may be executed for that resistance. And this is why many choose to compromise rather than to obey because it's easier and more expedient to do so. So there is a time that God may call us to resist, but let us therefore understand and know that in doing so, we are still subject to the consequences thereof. And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stated, hey, the Lord can free us and save us from this fiery furnace if he so chooses, and he did, but either that or we'll die glorifying him. Again, is it radical? It sure is. But that's what we are called to. That was the example that God has given us. And I want to close this morning with these words, if I may. These are from Chuck Swindoll. As many of you know, I think he's one of my favorite pastors. Just listen to this as we close everything that we have discussed this morning. He says, our world bombards us with messages that urge us to stand up for our personal rights. We are quick to defend ourselves when we feel someone steps on our toes, crosses the line, ignores the boundaries, or intrudes on our personal domain. We can find a lawyer's phone number, he says, quicker than we can find a passage of scripture that calls us to endure hardship. He says, stop and think. When did you last take it on the chin for the cause of Christ? When did you last surrender your rights for the deliberate purpose of following Christ's example? He says, how rare it is, especially in our fight back, get even culture. I leave with those words. Because if we are going to live righteously and stand in righteousness before this world, it is going to be a radical decision to do so. And we need the Lord's, not only his example, but his help in doing so through the power of the Holy Spirit.